Welcome back to Longmont Church of the Nazarene Online. Uh, For those who have been joining us online, I just want you to know that there's going to be a change in store. Um, This coming Sunday, the 20th, um, and we'll have this message loaded and online for you to view on the 20th. Um, We will be our last service in the parking lot um, outside. Um, On the 27th, we'll be moving back into the sanctuary, and when we do, um, we'll no longer be recording ahead of time like I do now. We'll be recording uh, the sermon on the Sunday morning uh, as we worship together, and then it will be loaded either on Monday or Tuesday for you to view. Our goal then is eventually, um, as we learn how to and have the equipment to do so, we will be live streaming on Sunday morning so that at service time you can go to your computer, uh, log in, and uh, view uh, the message live on Sunday morning and won't have to wait uh, till Monday or Tuesday to view it. So I wanted you to be aware of that. We are continuing our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We'll be looking at the Sixth Commandment today. But before we do that, let's join in a moment of prayer. Father, we come before you today grateful for your goodness to us revealed in so many ways. And one of the things that's been on my heart and mind, and I think for a lot of us, have been the fires that have been burning in the western United States. I know here in Colorado, some of those major fires, uh, they've been able to get a real handle on. We're certainly grateful for that. Um, the, the moisture we got a week or so ago, I know, was a, a real boon and real, made a huge difference. And Lord, we pray that you'll bless those who are still fighting those fires with safety and, and strength and success in bringing those under control. And then I, um, I think about um, the West Coast. <clears throat> I know that at least uh, on the northern West Coast, the Portland-Vancouver areas, uh, some of the areas where those fires are burning in Oregon and Washington right now, they've been getting rain today. Lord God, what a blessing. We thank you so much for that. We know what a huge difference that will make. The temperatures have cooled. And so again, Lord, we pray that those who are on the front lines fighting those fires, Lord God, would be successful in bringing those things in containment. You'd give wisdom to the, those who make decisions uh, so they put people in the right places to do the best job possible of getting those things under control. We thank you, Lord God, for the truth of Scripture and the Ten Commandments, your rules for right living, and how... They are applicable to our lives right now today. This is not some sort of ancient document that was just for the Jewish people long, long ago. Lord God, you were able to look down uh, the the annals of time and and you knew what it was going to be like in 2020. And what you said then, you intended for us now. So I pray that as we work our way through this message today, that you would speak to our hearts uh, through your Holy Spirit. And Lord God, help us to come into agreement and obedience to what your Holy Spirit tells us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercies that are new every morning, for your grace, 
your mercy and your everlasting love. We give you praise and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll find the sixth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, if you want to locate that in your Bibles. Um, Before we read that together, uh, as I was doing my research for this message, I came across this article entitled, What Do Your People Want to Hear from the Pulpit? And I was encouraged by it, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. It's written by uh, a pastor named Ron Allen. Uh, It was... This is uh, just something done recently, September 14th, 2020. Um, and it says this, the most surprising challenge to emerge from the data, and he's, he's writing about what your people want to hear from the pulpit. The most surprising challenge to emerge from the de- data is a request to preachers to bring controversial issues into the pulpit. Yes, you read that correctly. Many of the listeners want ministers to help them wrestle with God's purposes in connection with matters such as war with other nations, abortion, and same-gender relationships. As someone said, who else is going to help us think about these things from God's point of view? The respondents in our study do not want preachers to tell them how to vote or what to think, but they do want help interpreting issues from a theological point of view, and considering possibilities for faithful responses. And so as I begin uh, the body of the message today, I wanted to share um, these thoughts uh, from Ron Mel, who wrote the book, The Tender Commandments, and I think this will give you a clue about where we're headed today. He writes, Civil liberties groups rouse themselves to heights of passion, to preserve our rights to kill. Whether taking our own lives with a pharmacist's lethal prescription or killing babies in or just as they emerge from the womb. You know, um, a, a lot of issues could be covered in the discussion of the sixth commandment today. Those would include possibly euthanasia, the death penalty, the taking of life in war, and abortion. And I'm going to touch on only one of those today. I think a discussion of all of those would keep us here for hours. You know, life is God's gift to us. It's, it's his creation. He is in fact life. If, if there were no God, there would be no life, physical or spiritual. And since God is the author of life, he gets to make the rules by which it is lived. Not only that, he is the one who determines when it begins and when it ends. I believe God established the sanctity of life the moment he created Adam and Eve and breathed life into them. Long before giving the giving of the law, we see God holding Cain the first murderer, fully accountable for his crime. Later, after the flood, God gave this command to Noah. This is Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Obviously, God is saying 
that the taking of human life is very serious business. This verse indicates that in killing a human being, a murderer demonstrates his contempt for God as well as his contempt for his fellow man. So let's take a step forward from the time of Noah to the time of Moses and the book of Exodus, where we will take a look at the Sixth Commandment today. And I would imagine that if I asked you to quote that commandment, because a lot of us grew up with the King James Version of the Bible, you would say that commandment says, Thou shalt not kill. Well, let me read it from the New International Version. That's uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and it says this, You shall not murder. Um, if you read the King James and the Revised Standard Version, some of the what we might call more traditional versions of the Bible, you would find that this commandment says or uses the word kill. Thou shalt not kill. You shall not kill. But in the NIV, the New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, and, and many of the others, it's stated like I just read for you. You shall not murder. Now, this is a very specific command. It refers only to the killing of a human. It is not a general prohibition against all forms of life taking. <clears throat> the word translated kill or murder is a Hebrew word and it refers to an unlawful killing of a human being with malice aforethought. It's a rarely used Hebrew word that is not a derivative <clears throat> or form of another word that changes with usage or uh, instead it's very specific. So there aren't different forms of this. If you use it in this context, it means one thing. If you use it in this context, it means another. No, it's very specific. It refers only to the killing of a human being. This immediately eliminates then the use of this commandment for the basis of freeing lab animals, condemning the raising of livestock for beef, pork, lamb, chicken, or turkey, or stands, it's against, it would not be in favor of or support stands that some people take against activities like hunting and fishing. There is absolutely no support in this commandment for those points of view. This is strictly a prohibition against the willful taking of human life. <clears throat> so, why would God give this warning? Well, because He knows the human heart and He understands what we are capable of. Obviously, we saw it in the story of Cain and Abel. But, he, but also because he knows that when I love him above all else and put him first in my life, I will not injure anyone. I will, it will not be in my heart to offend, slander, hurt, humiliate, destroy, or write anyone off. Instead, I will have his heart toward men, women, and children. 
So this commandment then impresses upon us the value of human life, as well as the seriousness of taking another human life. We also need to understand that for every negative commandment God gives, that God gives us, there is a, a positive commandment implied. If God says we shall not murder, then we are to understand that we then are to choose life. Jesus is the great life giver. Satan is the great life destroyer. John 8.44, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here, and he says, You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, And have it to the full. Satan's ultimate purpose is to destroy our lives. But Jesus has come to give us life. So when we talk about choosing life, I want you to think of Jesus as the great life giver who blesses us with three kinds of life. And the first is physical life. This living, breathing, moving thing that we have. Jesus gives us physical life. The fact that you and I are here, that, we can, that you can see me and hear what I say, that your heart beats and there is breath in your lungs is because Jesus has given you and me life. The Bible says all things were made by him and that includes you and me. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says this, Speaking of Jesus, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When he says all things, that includes us. That leads to a truth, then, that we need to understand. We are not a cosmic happenstance that has occurred as a result of evolution. To say that life originated through spontaneous generation in some primordial soup is in Incredible, if not laughable, especially since no one can explain where the soup came from. Dr. George Wald, who won a Nobel Prize in the uh, joint fields of physiology and medicine, says this about the origin of life. When it comes to the origin of life on this earth, there are only two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is not a third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago. But that leads us only to one other conclusion. That of supernatural creation. So far, so good. Wouldn't you agree? 
But Dr. Wald doesn't stop there. He continues. If we cannot accept that, that God created, in other words, the conclusion that life arose as a supernatural creative act of God, on philosophical grounds, therefore, we choose then to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. Christian author Frank Peretti, commenting on the idea of evolution, has said this, You are an accident, but you're an important accident. We need to understand that we are created by Jesus Christ on purpose and with a purpose. And then, so Jesus has given us physical life, then he has given us spiritual life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus said, I am the way, he was saying that without me, you won't get there. When he said, I am the truth, he was saying, without me, there is no understanding. And when he said, I am the life, he was saying, without me, there is no living. With Jesus, we are told, again, from John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they, that you and I may have life and have it to the full. See, Christians are not just nice people trying to do their best. They're not just those who have accepted a different creed or code of conduct. They're new creations, spiritually alive. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Jesus gives us physical life, he gives us spiritual life, and he gives us eternal life. Jesus is the author of never-ending life. One of, the, one of the verses that says that so clearly is one that many, many of us know. John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says this, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And folks... Eternal life speaks of quality as well as quantity. Jesus adds years to life and life to years. Only Jesus can give this kind of life. So, if you would choose life that is life indeed, you must choose Jesus. But we also told you moments ago, that someone is a life destroyer. That is Satan. Jesus is a life giver. Satan is the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In, in, in a, the scripture I quoted for you a while ago, Jesus said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And since Satan is a murderer and the sixth commandment says you shall not murder, 
This is another way of saying that we must reject Satan. We must choose life because Satan wants to bring death into your family. He wants to bring death into your relationships. He wants to bring death to purity, death to joy, death to happiness. He wants to bring physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. Someone discovered that evil spelled backwards is live, L-I-V-E. And devil spelled backwards is lived. Satan is the antithesis of everything that spells life. And why does does Satan hate life? Well, he hates life because he hates man. And why does he hate man? Because man is made in the image of God and he hates God. But he cannot get at God, so he tries to get at us instead. Did you know that music is one of the means that Satan uses to bring death into our lives? And I know some of these names that I'm going to share, these are names of rock groups that I'm going to share with you, come from decades past. But listen to these. These have been popular groups over the past decade or two. Here are their names. Poison, Slayer, Grateful Dead, Megadeth, Iron Maiden, Anthrax, Napalm Death, Dead Kennedys, DOA, Death Angel, Suicidal Tendencies, Slaughter, Cannibal Corpse, Grim Reaper, Blue Murder, Autopsy, and Suffocation. Not a very cheery list, is it? None of these names are positive and uplifting, and they all relate to death. It's a battle for minds, and Satan uses this tool very effectively. He is a liar and a murderer, and one of his preferred weapons is deception. Let's make sure we are protecting ourselves and those we love against Satan, the destroyer. So, we then need to be protectors of life. When the children of Israel were about to enter their inheritance, the promised land, Moses called them together and gave them this word. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20. He said, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This passage tells us two really important things. Number one, we are to choose life. Number two, the Lord God is life. And let's be honest about it. We live in a culture of death. We hear it in secular music. and I just cited some of the names of the groups that sing that music. We see it in movies, television, video games. And even as I speak today, We are seeing it in the violence that is taking place on the streets of some of our major major cities right now. 
You know, there's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. And it says this, When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. What's this verse telling us? Well, it's telling us that God requires that we take measures to protect life. And this is not just about people who might fall off of the roof. This is a principle we are to live by, to protect life. We are to be protectors of life. And so with that being said, let's look at what we can do to protect life. And the issue I'm going to deal with is one of those controversial things that I mentioned in that opening uh, paragraph from the article that I shared with you. I want to talk about abortion. See, one way we need to protect life is by protecting the unborn from abortion. According to the Guttmacher Institute, there, and, and I was unable to find current statistics for the year 2019, But according to the Guttmacher Institute, there were 862,320 abortions in the U.S. in 2017. This does not include what might be called at-home abortions that are induced through the use of an abortifacient. In other words, an abortion pill or something you can take to abort a baby at home without going in to see a physician. You know, I think there's something wrong. And when we protect the Razorback Sucker, California Condor, Dusky Gopher Frog, and Columbia Basin Pygmy Rabbit, but make the mother's womb a dangerous place for babies. This is not to say that we shouldn't take steps to protect endangered animal species. I believe that we're to be good stewards of the planet we inhabit, And I would hate to see any animal or plant species go extinct because we did not take measures to ensure the survival of those species. All living things have a place in the order that God created. The problem is that we have gotten that order turned upside down. Here's an example from a news story I found several years ago. A man caught and killed a rat that was eating the tomatoes in his garden. He received a summons served by the director of the local Humane Society. He was told that he faced a possible fine of $1,250 and up to six months in jail. The director of the Humane Society became a laughingstock in the community. He or she responded by saying that the summons was issued because the rat suffered humiliation and suffered a horrible death. The director's reasoning goes to the heart of the problem here. That director said the rat was humiliated. Humiliation is a human emotion. We have humanized animals and dehumanized unborn babies. That's the issue, isn't it? We now debate these questions. Is it human? This baby, this developing embryo, this fetus in the womb, is it human? And when does life begin? 
Well, I think the Bible answers those questions. Let me cite for you a couple of scripture passages. The first is Jeremiah 1, chapter 1, verse 5. <coughs> Excuse me. Before I formed you in the womb, God is speaking here to Jeremiah, I knew you. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then in Psalm 39, verses 13 through 16, the psalmist says, For you you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Here's what I see in these two passages. First of all, God recognized Jeremiah and the writer of Psalm 39 as persons, as humans, from the moment of conception. You don't have plans for non-beings. And he said, before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then in the psalm, it says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God recognized Jeremiah and the writer of Psalm 39 as persons, as humans from the very moment of conception. See, there is no time frame put on, de- on fetal development from God's perspective that says, when you reach eight weeks or some other stage of development in the womb, you are alive and considered a human. No. From day one, These examples, Jeremiah and the psalmist, were alive and human, and God had a plan for their lives. And I believe that's true for all mankind, for every baby that's ever been formed in the womb. You know, I remember um, one point in the argument about the humanness of of the developing baby. It was pointed out that in the early stages of development, the embryo looks remarkably similar to that of the developmental stages of mice and fish and frogs. So there was this thing about, well, it's not human then. So maybe you remember the story of when Samuel went to Jesse's house to anoint a king to take Saul's place. And Jesse lined up his son's all sharp, good-looking young men. But Samuel's told by the Spirit of God that, well, it's not any of these guys. The son that God chose was the kid out in the field taking care of the sheep. And the Scripture tells us this. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, that's the case with the human embryo. You can't look on the outward appearance You have to look at the chromosomal level. You have to look at the genetic makeup. Because I will tell you, from the very beginning of conception, the chromosomal, chromosomal, the genetic makeup, says human being. From day one, 
It's not a mouse. It's not a frog. It's not a fish. It's a human being. I don't care what it looks like. It's the chromosomes that tell us. It's the genes that tell us. So we must be people who choose and howl a life. And in, in doing so, obey the sixth commandment. That baby in the mother's womb is a separate life with every component of life in it. If the sixth commandment means anything, it means we must protect the unborn from the horror of abortion. Now let me touch on another controversial subject here. I want to relate this to something we are seeing daily in the headlines right now. And I begin by citing the following statistics from Focus on the Family, um, an article I found entitled Facts and Research About the Unborn and Abortion. The abortion rate among black women is almost five times that of white women. 13, 13% of American women are black, but account for 35% of all abortions. Almost one in two African-American pregnancies end in abortion. Black lives matter. Yes, they do. But the impression I get when watching and reading the news about BLM is that the only black lives that matter are the ones that die in encounters with law enforcement. I don't know about you, but I have never heard any of the stats I just read to you mentioned by a major news outlet when presenting stories about Black Lives Matter. So it would seem that the black lives that matter do not include unborn black babies. And the sad thing about that, any, any aborted baby, the sad thing is that we do not know what we may have lost in terms of positive contributions to mankind because of the millions of babies that have been aborted. And there are women and men, too, who will never know what they missed. I want to share with you, it's a country western song. It was done by Kenny Chesney. And it's from the perspective of a man and an unplanned pregnancy. And it's called There Goes My Life. And I'm going to read it just it was, as it was written, so you'll have to excuse one phrase. But this is how the song goes. <clears throat> All he could think about was, I'm too young for this. Got my whole life ahead. Hell, I'm just a kid myself. How am I going to raise one? All he could see were his dreams going up in smoke. So much for ditching this town and hanging out on the coast. Oh, well, those plans are long gone. And he said, there goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. Might as well kiss it all goodbye. There goes my life. A couple of years of up all night and a few thousand diapers later that mistake he thought he made covers up the refrigerator oh yeah he loves that little girl mama's waiting to tuck her in as she stumbles up those stairs she smiles back at him dragging that teddy bear 
Sleep tight, blue eyes and bouncing curls. He smiles. There goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. I love you, Daddy. Good night. There goes my life. She had that Honda loaded down with Abercrombie clothes and 15 pairs of shoes and his American Express. He checked the oil and slammed the hood, said, you're good to go. She hugged them both and headed off to the West Coast. He cried. There goes my life. There goes my future, my everything. I love you, baby, goodbye. There goes my life. There goes my life, baby, goodbye. I would tell you this as I I wrap this up. First of all, we need to understand God does not grade sin. Note that this is the sixth commandment. It's not at the top of the list. We cannot say then that abortion is more sinful than other sins. And we must remember that there is grace and forgiveness for women who have had an abortion. But let me cite one more statistic because I think it plays deeply into this whole issue. And again, this is from um, focus on the family. 84% of women who have, had, who have abortions are unmarried, which tells me that there is a problem behind the problem. And that problem is our societal view of sex. God's standard says that the place of sex is only in marriage. Society says that there are basically no restrictions. One night stands hooking up, recreational sex, living together. And then when it happens, oh no, I'm pregnant, I'm single, I want to finish my education, I have a career, I don't have time for a baby, I can't afford to support a baby, so the problem is solved with an abortion. I really believe to effectively deal with the abortion issue, we need to deal with the sex issue. I don't know how we're going to do that. It seems to be so societally societally acceptable now that it's almost like we don't give it a second thought anymore in our culture. But I believe that that may be at the root of why we're seeing so many abortions in our country. Let me close with this. Life. It is God's gift to us. He is the one who determines when it begins and when it ends. And it is our job to respect, support, and protect that gift. And I say amen to that. Father, again, there's so many directions you could go with this commandment. But I know in my own mind, probably at the top of the list, and I even think of an election year, and as I look at candidates, one of the first things I consider is, where do they stand on the issue of abortion? That's a starting point for me. And I think really in my heart and mind, and according to Scripture, it should be at the very least, critically important 
to anyone, any Christian, any Christ follower who is making a decision about who they will cast their ballot for. And Lord God, what a tragedy it is when we think about the literal millions of babies that have been aborted in our country and around the world in the last several decades. It's tragic. I mean, we talk about those who are innocent, the most vulnerable in our society. Lord God, if that applies to anyone, it applies to babies in the womb. And, you know, I think about ancient Israel and the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel who were speaking God's judgment against Judah and Israel. And it seems that, you know, there were steps that they took towards judgment, you know, idol worship and, and they cheated each other and, and they neglected the poor and there's a whole list of things, but it just seems like one of the last things, one of, one of the most, I don't know, perverse things they did was what the scripture calls offering their children, their babies in the fire. It was a heinous thing they did to the gods, the false gods, the idols of that day to actually burn their babies in the fire. And Lord God, you brought judgment on that because of of those things that they were doing. And we can say, well, we don't do anything like that. You know, what they did was they offered their babies for the sake of, you know, rain and improved harvests and those kinds of things. We do it now instead for convenience and freedom of control and even for financial concerns. Really, Lord God, when we look at it side by side with what they did back then, We're certainly no better and no less deserving of judgment. God help us. God forgive us. My prayer is that you would bring a stop to this practice in our country. It's gone on way too long. Too many unborn babies. Lives have been sacrificed. And so, Lord God, as we consider the sixth commandment, and I know... It would have a broad range of meaning. But Lord God, specifically when it comes again to the most vulnerable, the most innocent, may we hallow life, may we respect life, and especially may we protect unborn life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us again today. God bless your week.